Good morning, everybody. The scripture we want to look at today is found in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, and beginning with verse 23. Paul writing to the Corinthians especially chapter or the first letter. He's just dealing with a whole series of problems in the church, errors in their practice, in their worship, in their ethics, um, and he had a lot to cover. In this case, he was dealing with incorrect thinking and practice regarding the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we are to celebrate this morning. Apparently they turned it into kind of a half-wild potluck, um, and some were um, drinking excessively. Um, It was utterly opposite of the... um, I guess I would use the word um, solemn, not necessarily... Um, some heavy-hearted, but it's it's worshipful. Uh, they were turning it into something else. So to correct that, beginning in verse 23, he said, I received from the Lord, <clears throat> and a note there, remember Paul was converted after persecuting the church and received his theological revelations from the Lord directly. He was not among the apostles who spent three years walking with Jesus, hearing him preach, watching all he did, listening to his teaching and incorporating that. He, he had none of that. And it is believed, and I think accurately, that after he was converted on the road to Damascus, spent some time in Damascus, on the threat of death, the brethren there, the Christians, let him uh, down the city wall, outside the city wall, in a basket um, so he could escape. And he said he went for three years into the Arabian desert. And there is where he received revelations from the Lord himself of Christian theology, the truths that we believe and that form the basis of the Christian faith. So he says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread 
or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. We'll end our reading there. I don't know how many of you are aware, maybe some are, of how controversial at one time, for a long time, was this simple sacramental ritual that we will participate in this morning. I don't know how many of you know there were literally battles fought over this ritual. There were many people burned at the stake literally over this ritual. There were all kinds of swirling theological arguments over this ritual. And it's tragic that something as solemn, as worshipful, as filled with grace as this sacrament was turned into. Now let me just give you a little bit of background of why this sacrament became such a controversial event. First of all, the word sacrament itself has to do with a pledge, usually a monetary pledge that you would give and was usually kept in a sacred place, usually a god's, one of some of the many gods in the Roman days, in their temple. There would be a safekeeping place where as a prelude to some kind of a lawsuit, both parties in the lawsuit would deposit a sum of money for safekeeping. And what they were doing, they were pledging that as far as they knew and believed sincerely, their case was just. It wasn't a frivolous lawsuit. They weren't trying to cheat someone. This was a legitimate difference of opinion, whatever it might have been. And you made this monetary deposit, which was kept in a sacred, safe place, and was called sacramentum. The Greek word was mystery for the same, the same word. It was, and there's something in a sense... There is mystery here. 
mystery that's revealed to us by faith. But there's a portion of this sacrament that is mysterious. We may not grasp it all. It doesn't mean it's, it's contrary to reason. Just like <clears throat> we don't understand the Trinity. There's mystery in the Trinity. But we solidly see it in Scripture everywhere. And it's a foundational article of faith in the Christian faith. We don't grasp it all. If we could grasp all that God said and done and left with us after He returned, Jesus returned to heaven, then we wouldn't have a God. We wouldn't have a God that is beyond our comprehension. We can comprehend enough of what He has given us to trust Him, and to be saved, participate in His plan of salvation. But we can't comprehend it all. That's part of the reason there was such controversy here. Now let me just get into the controversy briefly. The controversy became, uh, came about through a telltale, almost certain, flaw of humans. This ritual, like baptism, has symbols. The symbols represent something else. A physical symbol represents something spiritual. Humans are incurable in their tendency to elevate the symbol itself and forget what it symbolizes. Why is that? Because we are fleshly. We believe what we can see. We fixate on what we can see. And we lose track of what is being symbolized, which you can't see. I cannot physically see how God forgives sins. I can't see it. There's absolutely nothing physical about it. But to symbolize what has occurred, we bring water and we baptize people who have believed. That symbolizes what we can't see, the water does, in the washing away of sins. But what do we do? We focus on the water and gradually over even centuries, the water of baptism became the agent of forgiveness of sins, not faith in the blood of Jesus and in confession of her sins. So instead of focusing, like Paul said, we look at what can't be seen, because what can't be seen is eternal. 
What can be seen, he said, we don't look at it. Because it is passing away. It's temporal. But humans, again, are incurable. We focus on the water of baptism. The bread and the cup of communion. And so gradually there came a belief that the power was in the water. It isn't. It's in faith. But faith was forgotten. The power was in the water. Same with communion. The power was in the actual bread and wine and in eating that. Now, if you want to have power over people, over believers, what do you do? You encourage the belief that there's power in the water, there's power in the wine and the bread. Then you are able to control people by refusing to grant it. Excommunication means to be cut off from communion. And when you believe that the power spiritually to take me to heaven, to keep me alive spiritually, is actually in the bread and the cup, you have massive power over the consciences of people. Does that make any sense? So, there were no limits to the exercise of that power. And here's what began to develop. I've been talking about the two sacraments, but let's focus now on communion. The belief became prominent and then a settled article of faith that when the officiant, when the priest prayed a blessing, a consecration of the elements of the bread and the cup, that those two substances underwent at that instant a, a literal physical change. At that moment, they became the literal blood and the literal flesh of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's why it's called a sacrifice. Not a sacrament as it should be considered. It's a sacrifice which is covered by the word that means sacrifice, mass. So, when you withhold that from a never dying soul, you just consign them to hell. Now, there are times when I wouldn't mind some of that power. <laughs> um, but of course it's abused. And it goes completely off the rails. And so people begin to rise up in the medieval 
years and said, that's not true. We partake by faith. It is a means of grace, which I'll cover hopefully in a second. But there's no literal change that takes place in that bread and in that cup. They are symbols, not to be treated in any way lightheartedly, but they are symbols. Now when I say treated lightheartedly, I mean I pastoring in Oregon City in one of the, our sister in my denomination, there was a, I'll never forget, there was a youth pastor who gave communion to the youth group and instead of bread and the cup, he gave them bite-sized Snickers bars and Coke. Now, I remember, I was probably a little too rash then, but I remember saying, it's a good thing I wasn't God because I would have just absolutely struck him with lightning. That's sacrilegious. That's, that's trivial. That is demeaning to the meaning of this sacrament. We can't, obviously, go to that length. But the other link is just as wrong. Then there came in arguments over not only is the sacrament itself literally changed into the body and the flesh, the blood of Jesus, but it's only effective if it is administered by someone who is right with God because there were corrupt clergy. Terrible corruption. And so the belief was if you take the bread and the cup from a corrupt clergyman, it doesn't have any effect. It isn't, doesn't do anything for you. So that put even more power here. Wars were taught, were fought, and people burned at the stake for disagreeing with what was called transubstantiation. That the prayer, and we have in our ritual, I don't usually go through all of our ritual. We'll go through a little more than normal this morning. But we have in our ritual consecration of the elements. It's what the little title is in the ritual. That's when some believe the body and the blood of Christ are made literal. Others go to the extreme that they are merely symbols and there's no, there's no benefit as it were. But I noticed one of the songs we sang this morning spoke of the means of grace. I can't spend too much time on what a means of grace is. But grace is much more than the standard definition is unmerited favor. That's correct. Grace means unmerited favor. But it also means enablement, empowerment, the presence of the Holy Spirit in my heart. A means of grace then. There are numbers of means of grace. 
being here worshiping in this house of God with fellow believers is a means of grace. Our hearts, we trust, are blessed, encouraged, strengthened. We've, we touch God. Reading our Bibles, praying each day, those are both means of grace. Grace flows and is attributed and is delivered, as it were, to my heart through God's Word and through prayer, praying to God. Church attendance, Bible reading, prayer, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, all of those are called means of grace. Our hearts then are drawn closer to God. We're enlightened. We're empowered. We are taught through the means of grace. Now, when it comes to communion itself, what are we really doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, Jesus commanded that as often as you do this, which tells us that there is a certain amount of freedom in the frequency of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not here to say God said thou shalt have it every Sunday or whatever. Um, there are some churches, and the early church, the early church's um, pre-dawn services, when Sunday was not a day of rest yet, wasn't, they were underground. They would meet pre-dawn before they had to go to work, and a core part of their worship service was the Lord's Supper. My own just private opinion is that I think sometimes something can lose some of its significance if it's practiced too often. I've been in churches where it's a part of every single service, every Sunday. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I did notice and have noticed, being in those kinds of services, that it just loses some of its solemn significance. And in this one particular case I remember, it was incorporated into the announcements. So while the announcements were being made of then the church softball team will have a game Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, we're passing plates down the rows with the bread and the cup. And I watched everybody else to do what they were doing. You take this tray, you take a cup, down it, put it back in and pass it to the next one. That loses all, in my opinion, of its worshipfulness. I think then, as oft as you do this, Jesus didn't set a rule of the frequency. But he said, whenever you do, and I don't think it should be once a year either. 
But whenever you do, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul said he received from the Lord an additional exhortation about the Lord's Supper. You not only recall and remember in the eye of faith what Jesus did for us, but he says you show the Lord's death until he returns. So this is an act of faith on several levels. I believe, I believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. I believe because of his sacrifice and his victory over sin, he has the power to forgive sins and to transform us. I believe God raised him from the dead. I believe that he is very God and very man. This then is not a physical swallowing of some bread and some grape juice. This is an act of faith. And that act of faith continues in the second part of this ritual, which you, you do show the Lord's death until he returns. There's the second act of faith is he will return. We watch, Paul told the Thessalonians, we watch with patience, waiting his return. So it's an act of faith that is an acknowledgement of the power of the cross and the tomb, empty tomb. And there is also a faith of anticipation. Jesus is coming again. I don't know if I'll be alive when he does, but I know he will return because he said so. And his word, he cannot lie. So, we are engaged then in really a deep reasserting, reinforcing, remembering, reaffirming of our faith. We believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. And He will return to gather His sheep to Himself. Now when it says, when Paul said, don't drink this unworthily, he means, and he says, examine yourself. Interesting, he doesn't specifically say, let God examine you, though that's implied. With the honesty of a sincere heart, open to God's scrutiny, we examine ourselves. Are we, do we believe? Now, of course, you cannot separate believing from behaving. My actions prove or disprove what I say I believe. So in this sacrament, before we partake of it, we check our faith 
and we check our acts, our lives, our practices, our behavior, our conduct, in addition to our inward motives. We examine ourselves as the Holy Spirit reveals to us. I also believe that the Scripture teaches us that even, and we do have in the ritual, there is a time prior to partaking where under self-examination, examination of the Holy Spirit, we settle something if we need to settle it with God. We confess some rituals, I think, go too far in what they confess. I've, I've read some. I've thought at times of using um, the Church of England, the Book of Common Prayer ritual for communion. This is where our ritual has it been adapted to. But it's almost like when you get done with the confession period portion of the Lord's Supper, it's, we're just pure scum. <laughs> um, man, it's just, it really, it is. We've done this, we've done that, we've not loved God, we've, not, we've hated our neighbor. We, wait a minute. If we're Christians... That's not a very good description. I hope we aren't that bad. Um, yes, we need to be conscious of failing, shortcomings, and so forth. But God's done something for us in transforming us. Therefore, we partake of this sacrament. So, I want us this morning to... Let the Holy Spirit help us examine ourselves. The same thing Paul said in another passage to the Corinthians. Examine yourselves and see whether you be in the faith. Am I really walking with God? Am I walking in the light that he's given me? Or is he talking to me about something and he keeps talking to me about it till I take care of it? That's what we want to do prior and then we want to both gratefully and worshipfully partake together of the Lord's Supper. Let's bow our heads <clears throat> for prayer. And we'll use the prayer that has been prayed for many years, centuries, literally. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.